Today, we speak with the CEO of an organization that defends and protects the ecosystem beneficial to the success of wheat growers in the United States. Stay tuned as we learn more about their advocacy efforts for the wheat industry. Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast, and I hope you're enjoying season four. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, engage, educate, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Chandler Gould, the Chief Executive Officer for the National Association of Wheat Growers. Now, in this role, Chandler oversees their industry relations, leads efforts to advocate for the American wheat farmers. He also serves as the Executive Director of the National Wheat Foundation. Prior to joining NAWG in 2016, he was the Senior Vice President of Programs for the National Farmers Union. Chandler served as the staff director for the Subcommittee on Livestock, Dairy, and Poultry for the U.S. House Committee on Agriculture. Now, working extensively in D.C., he's worked on agriculture, food safety, and trade policy in the public sector for a member of Congress, as well as for numerous private sector organizations. Now, he grew up in the great state of Texas where he was a graduate of Texas A&M University on a 4-H scholarship. He also holds a master's in political management from the university, from the George Washington University. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Chandler Gould to today's show. Welcome, Chandler. Thank you. Thank you very much for that excellent introduction and uh, uh, kudos to Texas A&M and George Washington University. Kudos or congratulations? Well, uh, <laughs> congratulations and kudos to me for graduating. That's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> Wonderful. That's that's fabulous. Hey, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you just think of the word advocacy? You know, that the first thing that comes to my mind is, is somebody who is speaking on behalf of someone who can't be there in person themselves. And, and whether that is Uh, in body or in um, theory or in philosophy. And so when we say um, advocacy, that is me acting on behalf of someone else's best interest. That's a a great definition. And and I ask this all the time and I get a different definition each time, which is good because it shows the diversity of how people think and use the word advocacy. So, So why is advocacy engagement in the public policy arena so important to wheat farmers across the country. Well, you know, this is, the, you know, while you and I are doing this podcast right now, uh, all of my winter wheat farmers, so that's about 70% of the wheat production here in the United States, they are all sitting on tractors right now trying to harvest 
uh, the wheat that went through a severe winter drought, which we can talk about that and how we advocated to Congress and the USDA to get some uh, help to those growers. And then all of my spring wheat growers, which is the remaining 30% of our production here in the United States, it has been so excessively wet, we're just hoping the wheat actually comes up and, and hasn't been killed out by moisture. And so, uh, you know, as things move through Congress right now, we're looking at different supplementals for, for input costs and we're preparing for a farm bill. My wheat growers in the 20 states we represent can't be here in DC. They can't go speak to the Senate and House Agriculture Committee. But my team and I here at NOG, that's what we do. And matter of fact, we were having a board meeting tomorrow and the 20 states will be coming together and setting our farm bill priorities. And then my team and I will map out, literally map out Capitol Hill of which offices we need to hit first, second, and third to go advocate on behalf of all the US wheat growers of what we want in the 2023 farm bill. You know, it's interesting you're talking about the winter wheat. Um, my wife's family had a farm up until just recently uh, on the High Line in Montana that oh, grew yeah. winter wheat all the time. Yeah. So uh, very, very familiar with that. Uh, what is on the minds of your members? You brought up a couple of things. You know, you had the, the issues over the winter and, and uh, less water than normal. But what's on the minds of your members? Because I know you listen to your members uh, to, to see what's actually affecting them on the ground. I, I, the most I'm, I'm getting the most phone calls and, and emails and text and Facebook Messenger and everything else. Uh, it's, it's input costs. I mean, uh, we really need to be turning and focusing on the farm bill so we can get that up there. But that's not really what's on the front, forefront of our wheat growers mind. It is the cost of crop protection tools or availability. It is the cost of diesel. I know I've done several interviews in the last two weeks. I think a lot of people in the non-agriculture sector uh, don't realize that diesel is the one input that a farmer absolutely cannot get around. I mean, you might be able to cut back a little bit on fertilizer or, or cut back a little bit on a fungicide. Um, you may decide that you know, you're know you not going to do that next pass over your field, but you've still got to use diesel to plant your crop. You've got to use diesel to harvest your crop. Then you have to drive your crop either to a grain elevator or to a miller or something along those lines. And so these exorbitant high prices, even though we've had historically high wheat prices due to the war uh, with Russia and Ukraine, it is being completely eaten up by the increased cost of production. And I still feel that there's a decent chance it could be a rough financial year for many wheat growers, even with these high prices, they are simply not keeping up with the cost of production. You know, you, you ran right into my next question, which was how is the war in Ukraine really affecting uh, the wheat farmers? Because the assumption is that because wheat is up, that it's, it's a boon for them. But uh, you've just explained some of those some of those issues. How's it going to affect our, the winter or the I'm sorry, the world marketplace? Well, the first and most important thing that the the war that Russia uh, basically threw onto Ukraine clearly they weren't asking for this. Um, it immediately made the U.S. wheat market very volatile. I mean, that the price we were hovering around five five twenty five five fifty. I think we'd gotten up to six. And then the, the war is a little over 100 days in, and we've gone all the way up to $14 a bushel. And so I know a lot of people are looking at that thinking, hey, you know, wheat growers are making a, a tremendous amount of money. And there's two things I really want to uh, talk about on this point. Uh, the first, even though wheat went all the way up to $14, uh, that is not encouraging wheat farmers to plant more acres of wheat. 
it's actually doing the exact opposite because what it is telling the wheat farmer is that that market is responding to a geopolitical issue and not supply and demand. And just as fast as that market went from $5 to 14, it can go back down to $5. And so, so hedging that risk of not knowing what the futures price is going to be since it's responding to a war and not supply demand uh, really could be discouraging for uh, wheat growers to expand their acreage. So I think a lot of people don't understand that dynamic. Uh, the second one, and I'll try to make this one just a little shorter, but you know, we've got uh, historically high food prices uh, globally right now. And so even though your loaf of bread that cost $3.99 is now costing $4.99, still just 17 cents is going back to the farmers, so the, to the U.S. wheat growers. So they're not getting more money back just because your food prices went up. Uh, same example, uh, cereal went from $4.99 to $5.99, still just 12, uh, 12 cents goes back to that wheat grower. So the war has caused volatility in our markets. It's increased food prices, but the amount of money actually going to the grower has stayed the same. Well, that's interesting because I was gonna, I was gonna kind of dive down there a little bit. Well, that's twice, Chandler. You've stepped right in to where I was gonna go with things. Uh, so that means we're on the same wavelength with this. So, so now, I understand because your farmers are harvesting right now, particularly for the winter wheat. Uh, but under other times, how do you use your grassroots supporters, those farmers? in dealing with those policy priorities where do you, where do they come into the into the game well nog is clearly a farmer led organization i've got a i have a fantastic team here in dc that represent them but we are 100% farmer led uh, farmer owned you know if you want to look at it uh, that way and you know through uh, leading up to our board meeting that's going to be tomorrow on on farm bill priorities we've had you know eight or nine work sessions in our two policy committees you know, looking at crop insurance, you know, do, do we want to look for expanding it? Do we want to look at more yield products or more revenue products? You know, how is the farm credit system working for you? Has anyone even used, you know, a, a, um, a, a guaranteed loan from the USDA, which is still put, take a part of our CBO score? And the answer to that's really no, no one's used those since like 2014. And so, we, we ping things off of them so that we know exactly what's going on the ground. Because just because I've read policy that came out of the USDA or out of the Congress, and it makes sense on paper, you've actually got to take it to that US wheat grower and say, can you actually apply this practice to your farm? Will it work? Because you know we can make things look really nice and sync, uh, in sync on paper, but when you've got to go put seed in the ground and grow it and harvest it, there may be logistical problems there that we need to work through. And that's why having this advocacy voice on behalf of the U.S. wheat grower and having their direct input on all of the policy and resolutions we support is, is, is how we do our job. I mean, they are the backbone of our advocacy plan. So they have the input. I'm sure that you gather or use them to gather personal stories uh, about exactly what you were just pointing out. What's actually happening with, you know, with their boots on the ground, if you will, uh, on, on the farm. So explain to others why personal storytelling is so important. And I'd like you to use that maybe through the lens of your experience of either being on the agriculture committee or working for a member of Congress. Why, why that resonates so much? Well, I can tell you, you know, let, let's look at it um, from when I was a staff director on the House Agriculture Committee. 
um, by far some of the best years of my life. I, I, I was a staffer and got to help uh, write the 2008 Farm Bill. And, you know, your congressman or senator or congresswoman, you know, they, they don't they like to hear from NOG. They like to hear from my, my three uh, lobbyists that do a fantastic job. We're, we're policy experts, but we can't vote for them. And so when I can go into a Kansas congressman or, or Kansas senator and say, you know, um, my Kansas wheat grower here, Clay, here is the issues that he's having due to the drought. And this is where crop insurance is falling short. And, and it's even better if I can actually bring him into town. So that's why we have fly-ins each year because the congressmen and the representatives actually wanna meet with their constituents and they wanna hear how the policies they either supported or didn't support are playing out in their congressional districts. And then of course, all that rolls back to who are you gonna vote for when it comes November during an election year? And so us being that bridge between the individual grower and their representative and, and, and bringing that individualized story to the congressman or to the USDA in the White House is really how we move the needle. We are the policy experts, but it's the actual voter constituent US uh, wheat farmer is who they wanna hear from. And that's where we need that practical application of the policy that we've advocated for. Well, and you bring up USDA appropriately because oftentimes I think people think that the only way that you can advocate is before members of Congress, but you have that right to take that storytelling, those individual farmer stories through the regulatory process and dealing with the different agencies, you know, whether, you know, through USDA or, or any other entity that may affect exactly what you're looking at for that particular time. Do you use that often on the regulatory side? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when 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 legislation is passed out of the Congress or if it's something that uh, the USDA uh, is already authorized to do, maybe under another farm bill, when we know they're getting ready to roll out, um, you know, the basically how the program is going to work, uh, having that strong relationship, just like I do with 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 my, the senators and the congressmen, I've got a strong relationship with not only the political appointees at the USDA, but also the career staff who've been there for 20 years and know how each of those programs work. And we can go in there and say, you know, as you're rolling out this program, you know, wheat, wheat is always unique. Um, we've got six different classes of wheat. It's grown in pretty much six different major geographies. And so our soft white wheat that's grown in the Pacific Northwest and our hard red winter wheat that's grown in Kansas and our soft red, um, uh, soft red wheat that's grown east of the Mississippi all have different production issues. Whether And so when we're rolling out a program, we need to help them develop it so that it works the best for all wheat growers and doesn't uh, pit regions or classes of wheat against each other. So not only do we lobby to the USDA, but then I also lobby to other NGOs. I mean, I talk to the corn growers, I talk to the soybean growers, uh, I talk to Crop Life America. Um, 90, you know, 90% of the time we're all on the same page, sometimes we're not. So, so we, we advocate in, in many places to the administration, the White House, other NGOs, and to Congress and to foreign governments. So uh, all great points, uh, and, and there's a lot to unpack there with a couple of things, but one of them is uh, when you talk about regulation, if there's people that are kind of issue advocates that are listening to this uh, podcast today, the last statistic I heard, and maybe you have something that's more uh, real in today's world, but for every page of legislation that gets passed, I've heard in the past that it's about 12 pages of regulation that go behind that. Do you think that's a fairly accurate 
Um, let's see, depending on what the bill is, I think 12 might be a little low. <laughs> it, may, it very well may be. But to your point then is how are you getting that message into the regulatory so that they understand how to interpret really what the members of Congress wanted to have done because they wanted to fix problems that Americans have in, in the different areas that they're at. Um, you make a really good point. Can I comment on that just a second? Please do. So when you're writing legislation, so I'm up here, I'm up here, my team lobbying uh, the Congress for the, let's just stick on the farm bill because that's coming up and it's easy. We want the legislation to be prescriptive enough that the will of the people, the will of the U.S. wheat grower, the will of the Congress is understood, but you want it to also have enough flexibility that when it goes down to the USDA and we go through this regulatory process you were just talking about, that we can make some tweaks to it so it works for all six classes of my wheat growers. So it's a very fine line to walk between being too prescriptive in your legislative language where you've tied the hands of the USDA. And then you can also not give enough description where the USDA basically has free will to go do whatever it wants. And so threading that needle is our job as the advocates on behalf of the, on behalf of the US wheat growers, because that's what we are trained to do to make sure we strike that balance. And it, and, and, and you know, it's not something you learn in school. It's, it, it's, you literally learn that by making mistakes. So. Exactly. And, and that's why we have the opportunity to correct them with new legislation or amending pieces of legislation that already, already exist out there. So I know farmers are busy. I know farmers are stressed. I know they have a lot on their plate. I know that you have a lot on your plate. So how do you go out and recruit and maybe find additional uh, advocates well, you know, any problem that wheat is having, the chances that corn, sorghum, soy, rice, uh, cotton are having it is pretty good. Um, you know, like right now, we've got this major issue with the Supreme Court uh, not taking up the case uh, for bear on glyphosate and, and state preemption. This is going to affect every crop protection tool that every single commodity uh, uses out there. And so that's how we coalesce uh, uh, and build these coalitions to go up to the hill very rarely is do I have just a wheat specific issue. And so that's why having this network, to be real honest, you know, um, yes, I was hired because I've got a policy expert background, but I'm really hired too because of my relationships and who I know. And, and being able to bring in those other CEOs, I, I sit on the Ag CEO Council. There's 25 of us. Um, Chris Novak chairs it from Crop Life America, and then Zippy Duval, president from the American Farm right. Bureau, and myself co-chair it. And so right there, we've got 25 major groups and their CEOs that we speak to every two weeks. And we can, you know, kind of cherry pick who needs to go to what meetings and to make sure that we're representing not only the wheat growers, but all farmers. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's a very effective tool as, as we talk about coalitions and alliances and, and everything else. Uh, do you feel, and this is kind of a philosophical question, if you will, but do you feel advocacy is either different or viewed differently than government relations or public policy? Well, that would definitely come down in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think that, that advocacy has survived in a positive connotation in, in our daily speech and vernacular. But like in my role, I am an I, I do advocacy work for the U.S. wheat farmer, but I'm also a lobbyist. 
And we've had several administrations, both Democrat and Republican, that have said we need to drain the swamp and get rid of all of us lobbyists. And, and, and I, I think that negative image has hurt the entire advocacy community, depending on which other synonym for advocacy or advocate gets gets pinned onto you. And so, you know, back when they were getting really strict on all those rules of what lobbyists could and couldn't do, I can tell you for sure, I never once traveled to a foreign country and played golf. I never, I never went on any of these elaborate trips. I mean, I did, I did get to leave the country, but they worked my butt off. I got up at 6 a.m. and they dropped me off at midnight. And even though I might've been in Singapore, I couldn't wait to come home because I was exhausted. Um, so, so, I think when you're in the foundation nonprofit world, it still has a very positive image. But when they find out, oh, you're advocating to Congress, I, I, I think several administrations have done us a disservice because I'm here representing US wheat farmers. And, and we know when you test words in the public, farmers still scores very high, very reputable as an excellent source. And so do we need to drain the swamp? Well, I don't know how we write a farm bill if I'm not here because we just talked about all my growers right now are in the field. So how would we advocate that message if we're not here in Washington, D.C. or in your state capital? Well, and I and I think the attack of different administrations at different times on, uh, on lobbyists plays to the cheap seats. It plays to the people that think that lobbyists are sitting back in the smoke-filled room with a cigar, having private meetings, doing dirty deals, and uh, people don't realize that that's no longer the case uh, and that that has changed very dramatically over the years. Uh, and Sunshine Laws have also helped that uh, quite a bit. So what are uh, five years down the road? He puts his, crist uh, his crystal ball in front of him now, and he's looking at what are the biggest challenges going to face uh, the wheat industry and your growers? Well, one of my biggest concerns uh, as we move five and I would even say 10 years uh, down the road is that the wheat industry is slowly being pushed out of the United States. Uh, not because of our lack of love for bread and pasta and all the good things that you can make from wheat, but because the consumer still has this adverse, unfounded fear of innovation and, and genetic technology. And so what's actually happening when you look at where the wheat, you know, wheat basket or the wheat footprint uh, was in the 80s and 90s, you know, it started in Texas, went up I-35 to the Minnesota and the Dakotas, and then, you know, went west into Montana and the Pacific Northwest. And those were big wheat states. But as corn and soybeans are able to use innovation and, and gene technology, we've now got corn and soybeans growing on the Canadian border. You've got 72-day corn. And that those, those margins because of the RFS and other good programs like that is starting to make corn and soy look more appealing due to their wider, wider margin than what wheat has. And we're slowly being displaced, just like the good luck finding any oat acres in the United States. That all got pushed into Canada too. And so I'm real worried that if we don't allow innovation for either drought resistant, disease resistant, or even maybe a human health benefit. And I'm making this up, so please, I'm not a scientist, but like if we could put more zinc or antioxidants into the wheat kernel that would be transferred into the baked good, we're going to, the consumer is going to have to let us make some sort of change in order to keep up with the other commodities that are able to take advantage of, the, of that sound science. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and those challenges uh, are big. 
and it's and it's affecting the entire industry, the farming industry in general. Period. It, it, it is, and it's not. And, and I know I kind of harped on our consumers, but we also have to make sure our trading partners are comfortable. I mean, you know, Japan and the EU are not going to accept the GE event in the U.S. wheat industry. So it's not just us; it's also an international problem. We right. can't create a wheat that we can't sell. Yeah, exactly. Counterproductive there. Yes. So you're talking about the challenges in the industry. What's the biggest challenge for your job when it comes to advocacy as the CEO? You know, I think as an organization, and this goes for, I think, any organization, there's a bell curve on, 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 an, uh, on an organization's lifespan. And after COVID and how much Zoom and, and, and not meeting in person has taken place, I think as the average age of the farmer right now, I believe is 58, it's going up, not down. Uh, at, for the few young people that are coming back to their small towns and rural America and going into production agriculture, how do we make sure that, that we are still relevant? And, and I can tell you that the way NOG was run 20 years ago would not be effective today because the industry has changed, technology has changed, the way we communicate has changed. So we have got to be forever adapting to make sure that we have, they have a need for us and we have a need for them so that we're relevant uh, in all aspects to, in, our, in our advocating and in our membership. Excellent. Uh, you're a wonderful spokesperson. You know Thank your you. stuff, you communicate well. Uh, and that tells me that time is flying uh, during this interview because we've had just a great guest Chandler, do you have any other thoughts or anything you would like to add that you didn't get a chance to say? You know, um, the weed industry is a fantastic industry. And we've got a lot of excellent uh, farmers out there supporting not only our domestic uh, food needs, but global needs through USAID and, and the issues with the Middle Eastern countries that are very bread heavy and developing countries in Africa, especially during this time of, of conflict and war between Russia and Ukraine. And so being able to make, continue to feed everybody basically in the, in, in the world is very important. I'd also be remiss if I didn't give a big shout out to 4-H and FFA. And you said that in my inter introduction, I went to college on a 4-H for a scholarship. Um, my dad had passed away really suddenly when I was 15. And so if it wasn't for that 4-H scholarship, I wouldn't have been able to afford to go to Texas A&M. And so those leadership programs where I, my main thing in 4-H was public speaking. And that, so that's what I won state in. I wouldn't be here where I am today had it not been for 4-H and FFA. So I always want to give a big shout out to those two programs. Well, and that's, that's absolutely excellent. And by the way, I have interviewed Celico, uh, uh, Celia Glowacki, who is in charge of advocacy for the FFA. Uh, and uh, so when you were in Texas A&M, real quick, did you start off at Tarleton? I did not, even okay. though my mom told me I needed to. Uh, I went straight down to A&M because if I'd started at Tarleton, I was going to have to live at home and, and I, I was ready to go somewhere else at 18. <laughs> love my mom, love my family to death, but uh, A&M was just far enough they'd have to call before they showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I understand it. I, I, did a, I did a program for the Texas Farm Bureau at Tarleton for their yeah. youth leadership uh, there. And so I've been to that little town of, uh, is it Stephenville? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's where I went to high school. Absolutely. Well, Chandler, how can people reach the National Association of Wheat Growers for more information? 
So, I mean, the best place would be on the, on the web, go to wheatworld.org. Uh, there you can find our links on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And then you've also got our office phone numbers. All of my staff, uh, we're all on there. All of our email addresses are on there. And then we've even got all of our state associations who are our members. So if you're in Kansas and want to get a hold of the Kansas Wheat Growers, or you're in Oregon or Washington or uh, South Dakota, all of that information is at wheatworld.org. That's excellent. Well, that's a wrap of today's fantastic conversation with Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Thank you, Chandler, for being on the show today and for all of your advocacy efforts on behalf of wheat farmers across the United States. Thank you for the chance to be on your show. I look forward to doing it in the future. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices and Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.